You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Wednesday, the 9th of September. Welcome to the World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Emily, tell me about the moment from the past week you think has been most significant in the world. Maybe not most, but right up there is that India is now the country with the second highest number of coronavirus cases. The U.S. still holds the dubious distinction of being number one. But India overtook Brazil Monday. Infections are continuing to rise. Over 70,000 people have died. It is the worst affected country in Asia. And I think what's really worthy of note is that the outbreak's not slowing in India. And, you know, they've they've tried to ramp up testing, but it's still relatively low per capita. So this is just, this is what we know, right? Like, according to the numbers that we have, it's really bad, but it's almost certainly worse than that. And since I speak so much here about the situation in the United States, I think it's important to note that, that this pandemic is ravaging another extremely populated country in the world as well. And I think I'm right in saying that the, the rate is actually slowing in the US now. Is that right? Yes, although it's, I mean, it's always hard because it, it's its so different from, from state to state. But for example, in Washington, D.C., it, it appears to have plateaued. And on that grim note, Jeremy, what is your moment of the week? The moment of the week, I think, is particularly or among them, the more significant moments of the week for me was the British government admitting that it would break international law, quote, in a specific and limited way. So it's okay. By uh, <laughs> the best way to break international law by cutting across the the Brexit with withdrawal agreement, on which basis Britain left the EU at the end of January this year, and it, it is it's obviously a scandal in normative terms that a government would openly admit to planning this. The government's uh, own legal chief has resigned over this, but it also points to I think a sense in Downing Street that a no-deal exit from the transition period at the end of this year, at the end of December, is perhaps inevitable. And I think I think whatever the designs of the British government currently are, I think it does mean that a no-deal exit is now more, li- more likely than not. Um, so I do think that's significant, both for Britain, but also internationally, as the Brexit saga drags unremittingly on. Sounds fun. Yeah, exactly. So that we're now staring down the barrel of that sunny possibility later this year. 
Moving on, I'm very pleased to introduce our guest this week, who is Nick Burns. Nick is a writer at large. He is based in California and has written a number of excellent pieces for the New Statesman over recent months. He's written about the the, the new thinkers shaking up the American right. He's written about Brazil. And he's got two pieces which are coming out soon in our pages on the West Coast of the of, of the US and particularly California. So we thought we'd have him on to talk to us a bit about his travels there and the various issues on that side of the North American continent. So Nick, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, I understand that you join us after a somewhat hectic trip back through California. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So, th- so this was the the kind of return leg of the uh, road trip that began with our travels along Route 395, which will be described in that piece that's forthcoming. So this was along the coast from Seattle to uh, Palo Alto, where I'm currently looking out the window at a somewhat apocalyptic twilight landscape of orange-colored smoke through which no sun can be seen. There's a sort of thin layer of ash on everything. And that sort of gives you a, a, a picture of the sort of thing that is a very common scene across the West Coast right now. I understand that almost the entire stretch of West Coast coastline in America right now is uh, dealing with some amount of smoke or fire. In Seattle, there's ash falling from the sky. In Oregon, the sky is red. There's fires in Big Sur, south of San Francisco. And we encountered a number of fires on our way through uh, the very remote northern Californian coast. I'm going to try to camp near Willow Creek, north of Eureka. But uh, there's, um, there's a fire there, the uh, Red Salmon Complex. So we, we sort of rerouted and continued down uh, the 101, which is the main route through that stretch, only to find that the road was closed uh, near Willits which uh, we had sort of pushed pushed things late into the night at that point. So it was sort of two or three in the morning. So we, we had to drive back up the road and find somewhere to camp. Woke up the next morning to a sky full of smoke and uh, realized we should probably get out of there as uh, the fire was advancing northward towards us. So we managed to make it to the coast through this road choked with, with smoke, a very windy road through redwoods and uh, headed down the coast route very beautiful stretch of remote coast. When we cut in to try to get to San Francisco, we went through uh, another fire area, the uh, sort of remnants of the LNU complex fires. That was part of a a set of fires that were started by an enormous thunderstorm, which triggered over 11,000 lightning bolts and started hundreds of fires across the state, many of which are still being dealt with. And uh, all that's centered in the Bay Area, in the North Bay, in the East Bay, and in the South Bay. It's all been a, a truly devastating fire season here in California. You, you use the phrase fire season there. And so obviously there is a sort of expectation that, that wildfires do break out over the summer in California. But I understand this is on a kind of completely different scale from what the state's used to. It's just been a horrendous year so far. The fire season usually is sort of concentrated in the late summer and early fall because uh, the West Coast of the United States in general has a, a sort of wet season, dry season climate. So it generally, in California at least, it doesn't tend to rain almost at all from, um, say, March or so to maybe October or November. So towards the end of that period, you've had hot temperatures and no rain for uh, almost six months, which, as you can imagine, turns sort of vast swaths of the state into a tinderbox. And with, with that lightning storm 
And with the uh, extreme heat and high winds that, that we've been seeing across the state in these last few weeks, it's a recipe for destruction. This is a far worse year than last year. Although uh, I'm not sure if it's it's sort of number one in uh, the last decade or so, simply because these really bad fire season years seem to be getting more and more common. So, you know, I had this thought when we knew that the coronavirus was in Seattle, which was that if this had happened in New York, New York and Washington-based media would have, I mean, this is kind of my own conjecture, but would have would have taken it much more seriously earlier on, which is not to say that when things happen in New York, the rest of the country is not biased because it's happening in New York, but but that there was this kind of like, oh, well, that's happening in, in Seattle. And similarly, one imagines that if fires were raging on the East Coast, that this would be like the number one story throughout the country. Do you have a sense in California that there that there's frustration that not that this, I mean, obviously the story is being covered. I'm here in DC and I know about it. There are major California-based papers, i.e. the LA Times, who, who do great work covering this. But is there a sense of frustration that we're literally on fire over here? The sky is orange. There's ash raining from the heavens. And, and like, this is not, and everybody's not completely alarmed and consumed by this. I think it's certainly true that the uh, sort of East Coast media establishment sometimes doesn't pay as much attention to uh, West Coast events as it might. But in a certain way, also, it contributes to a kind of parallel syndrome where the West Coast thinks of itself as the entire country, I suppose. Especially here in Silicon Valley, the fires become an excuse to imagine that California is sort of the center of the world. It's sort of the, the other side of the coin of California being paradise, if you will, that California is either paradise or it's hell. I think often Californians take this, this tendency of East Coast journalists to maybe not pay quite as much attention to the fires as they might as a further proof and encouragement that uh, they should, in fact, sort of see their state as, as the extent of the known world, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So it's the other side of the <laughs> awareness coin. I think so. And uh, as far as the coronavirus in Seattle goes, as a consequence of being really the only major city in the area, of course, there's in Canada, there's Vancouver to the north, and there's uh, Portland, Oregon, about 300 miles to the south. But uh, Seattle is, you know, the only sort of major uh, sort of economic and media, etc., American city within a thousand miles or more. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, it has, I think, a very strong sort of regional culture and uh, sense of itself and uh, local media kind of establishment. Well, some people in Seattle, I think, certainly would have wished that the that their encounter with the coronavirus had been sort of more thoroughly publicized in Eastern media. I think a lot of people there are, you know, content with the coverage it gets locally and um, and think and consider their own response to have been quite you know, well-executed and proportionate. And, in, you know, in some ways, I, th- I think I saw that borne out myself. You know, the rates there, Seattle being the kind of West Coast's New York, went through this much earlier. And uh, now sort of case levels are at a much lower level than they are uh, in California. So many more things are uh, able to be open. And uh, people seem to have kind of settled into a routine of um, obeying a certain level of uh, protocols in order to keep transmission as low as possible while still kind of going about a more normal kind of life than is is possible in California right now, where rates are simply higher. I would just jump in to say that I think that what both of these cities, Seattle and New York, had in common about being the first to, to be seriously hit by the pandemic 
is that in both cases, people elsewhere in the country could look and think of it not as something happening in the United States, but as something happening in Seattle and something happening in New York. And indeed, there are reports that Jared Kushner, the presidential advisor slash son-in-law, saw that this was happening in democratic enclaves and said, well, maybe this will be effective for us politically, which is not the reaction that you have when you consider this to be an, an all-American problem. That actually bring, brings us nicely onto a point that I wanted to ask you about, Nick, from your piece about your your the outward bound leg of the journey that you've just uh, returned from to, 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 to Seattle. And you, you talk about this, this journey along, it's US 395, right? The least known of the three major routes running parallel or roughly parallel to the US West Coast and the one that travels furthest inland. And you talk about stopping off in Modoc County, which I believe is, is that's still in California, isn't it? That's not into Oregon or Washington. That's right. It's the uh, far northeast corner of California on the other side of the Sierra Nevada. And you talk, you talk about these sort of stereotypes. I mean, going back to this point about the coasts versus the sort of the rest of the country, this sense, particularly among sort of liberal media circles, that the American, what can we call it, heartland, that the, the, the kind of rural America that tends to vote for Donald Trump wasn't taking the coronavirus seriously, wasn't wearing masks, was sort of going its own way. And I wonder if you could just sort of recount how you experienced Murdoch County in the context of that sort of those sort of set of media assumptions. We'd, we'd conceived this trip a year ago or more before we heard about anything like the coronavirus. But um, when we'd, I think, also been intrigued by this unknown corner of California. Uh, it's six hours from San Francisco, six hours from Reno, and many more hours from any other major city. It's in the middle of nowhere, and it's on the way to nowhere. So it's not really somewhere that many people go in California. 395 generally is mostly, I think the strongest connection that most Californians have to it is that uh, well-to-do Angelinos take this highway to go to ski resorts in, um, in the Sierra Nevada. North of Lake Tahoe, the road simply doesn't go through much of anywhere. So we were interested to go to Modoc because we'd heard it sort of resurfaced, or for many people, I think, surfaced for the first time in the, the kind of uh, collective Californian understanding in this sort of cosmology of the Los Angeles Times, because it was it was the only county to openly reject the Governor Gavin Newsom's lockdown order. And it was also the only county not to register a single case of the virus. Now, there are only 10,000 people in Modoc County, which is about the size of Connecticut. So it's quite sparsely populated. And we were sort of intrigued by this. And we saw all these reports about sort of Modoc sheriffs, uh, you know, suggesting no mask mandates and uh, sort of swaggering heartland figures, spurning masks and restrictions. We uh, were sort of intrigued by this and wondered if, if there really was a part of the country where neither the kind of virus itself or nor the sort of protocols to combat it had reached. And also to, to sort of investigate this, as you mentioned, I think there's a kind of typology has developed in um, a lot of the major papers in the US that suggests that the inhabitants of the major coastal cities are doing the right thing and following the rules and that people in the heartland out of a kind of sadistic libertarianism throwing caution to the wind and saying, you know, you can't make me wear a mask, etc. We all, we've all read the articles. It's hard to avoid them in the U.S. about uh, the Sturgis motorcycle rally, this sort of maskless gathering of bikers in South Dakota, which has been linked to, you know, some large number of coronavirus cases. Was this the exception or the rule? 
And uh, I think something that I, I feel I, I learned on our trip to, to Modoc and other points in highly rural interior West along 395 was that to some extent it is in fact the exception. We found uh, quite contrary to the reports that we'd seen in the Los Angeles Times uh, that uh, all the sort of statewide restrictions were being observed quite energetically by inhabitants of Modoc County, all the theaters and restaurants looked like they'd been closed for some time. And uh, actually, just before we'd gotten there, they, they did register a couple cases. So they um, responded by tightening restrictions that were already in place. You know, many restaurants were only doing takeout and churches were doing services online or with sort of strict distancing and mask protocols. So that was quite surprising, I think. Um, and it, it wasn't... Uh, exactly what sort of we heard about this part of the country. And of course, it's it's not totally even. I think um, in parts of Oregon, people seem to be taking a bit of a more laissez-faire attitude. And uh, I wonder if that's not tied to the kind of autonomous pioneer ethic of Oregon, uh, in contrast to California or Washington, Washington being settled kind of later and more as a kind of boomtown. The West is generally known as a and I know this is a massive generalization as you as you were showing now by talking about those the different states but it is known as a sort of hotbed of of libertarian self-identity within the sort of US political cultural world are we getting at that here i mean with this sort of the bridling up masks in in some places but not others before nick gives the actual answer i would just note on the difference between california and oregon while there is a california secessionist movement it was in oregon that i think in 2016 there was the Bundy family standoff over land use. It's a matter of degrees, right? The degree to which you see this is this kind of frontier spirit. But anyway, Nick, now the real answer. Comparing the rural parts of Oregon to the rural parts of California, Washington, there was a bit more of that kind of stereotypical kind of libertarian streak in Oregon. And I don't know why that, and it's, it's, it, it was curious. It seemed to change quite quickly crossing the Washington or the California state line. I can only imagine that it is, you know, a kind of holdover from the fact of Oregon's being settled very much by, you know, kind of Oregon Trail pioneers, real uh, hardy types, you know, who, who don't like to rely on others and, and don't like to follow other people's rules. Of course, it's not as if there weren't people like that settling in Washington and California, too, but maybe Washington and California being settled more through booms the California gold rush and um, Seattle as a kind of epiphenomenon of the Alaskan gold rush contributes to a slightly different sensibility and maybe one that's a little more amenable to um, following sort of protocols that are set out by authorities and such. That brings us nicely onto the politics. And to come back to California, obviously, there's a presidential election this November the 3rd, but there are also state legislative elections in California. One thing I'm interested to know is, you know, California, as as we've been discussing, you know, with reference to places like Modoc County, it is it is more than the sort of stereotypes forged by the big cities as, as this sort of wall to wall Democrat state. I mean, especially in an election campaign and in an American political climate that's so defined by these sort of you know cultural polarization by identity debates, whether it's masks or racial justice or or, or what have you, with a president trying to stir up the fears of those living in the suburbs or, or, or living in sort of more kind of white or conservative parts of the country at the supposed seeping out of, of, of the violence and chaos that he attributes to the cities. Is that playing out at all 
kind of within Californian politics? I mean, we, we, we know that it's a liberal state, but I mean, could there be potential for Republican gains at least at a state level in the elections this November? Probably not uh, Not anything too considerable. The state legislature is pretty firmly in uh, Democratic hands and um, the state Republican Party's efforts to make itself competitive again have been almost entirely unsuccessful. If there are sort of signs of, of change in California in the elections this fall, they may come through the, uh, the ballot measures. These are one of the peculiar facets of uh, California democracy, a somewhat kind of ad hoc, often kind of multifarious and uh, disorganized, difficult to comprehend panoply of uh, referenda are presented each fall to, to voters many of which have been sort of placed on the ballot by interest groups and are sometimes phrased in a, in a way that, that is, is perhaps disingenuous. Or Some years back, there was a uh, ballot measure that seemed as if it was uh, pro-environmentalist, but actually was put in by the plastic lobby. Um, things like this happen quite a bit in California. But this fall, we've got, um, we've got a couple of important ones, one on voting for uh, felons, which is an issue that is uh, coming up in many states across the country, uh, is still a point of contention in Florida. And there is also a proposal to change the way that property taxes are assessed. Now, that may sound like a technical subject, but it's actually very much at the heart of Californian politics. This is a kind of holdover of the great tax revolt, the 70s, which um, Actually, a subject mentioned in um, Rick Perlstein's new book on the rise of Ronald Reagan. I uh, have a review of this coming out in uh, a forthcoming edition of The New Statesman. This sort of tax revolt, it uh, accomplished the capping and um, imposition of restrictions on how property taxes were assessed on houses in California. Property taxes have been rising very quickly. There's a boom in real estate prices, so people were getting these sort of prohibitive property taxes in. The reaction was to cap them in a very aggressive way, which basically meant that, well, one of the consequences of it is that many very wealthy people in the state pay almost nothing in property taxes. So it's been criticized often uh, from the left as a, one of the kind of policy choices which most entrench inequality in California. And inequality in California is among the highest in the United States. It's a profoundly unequal society with just prohibitive real estate prices in many parts of the state. So, so this ballot measure... It's kind of testing the waters for a repeal of, of this property tax restriction more generally, which is the great sort of desideratum of uh, many people who sort of do California policy. But, but this one is just for commercial property, storefronts and, and, and such. It's not for houses. If we get a proposition that, that will repeal this uh, property tax cap for houses sometime in the future, it will be a true brawl. I have two last questions for you, Nick. The first is, did you have the pleasure of watching the RNC? I did not. I was um, in Modoc County or thereabouts. Okay, well, then I will, I will lead you into this next question. So at the RNC, California was presented as the horrific future that will consume all of America should Joe Biden be our next president. In particular, Kimberly Guilfoyle, who is not only Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, but California Governor Gavin Newsom's ex-wife gave a speech and basically said, laid out, outlined all the ways in which California is a nightmare and this is what will happen if, if we vote for the Democrats. 
I don't want to ask you if Ms. Guilfoyle is correct, but I will ask you about this idea of California as the future of the country, because there's so much that we've been talking about, right? This market inequality, environmental consumption by climate change, just intense politicization of, of every issue that, I mean, you can see in, again, it's a matter of degrees, you can see it elsewhere in the country, but you can really see it in California. Do you think that that you're in the future, even though you're three hours behind, right? That, that that California is kind of a both a promise and a warning for the rest of the country. Mm. Yeah, I think I think it was Wallace Stegner who said that uh, California is just like the rest of the United States, only more so. Mm-hmm. I think also um, famous German exiles in Los Angeles, uh, Adorno et al., thought of California as the kind of most advanced point of Western civilization, if you will, the kind of place where one could observe dynamics which would soon work themselves into the rest of, of the West. If, if Alexis de Tocqueville were around, I, I suspect he would be traipsing around California trying to sort of discern its principle. But at the same time, I, I, I think there is a very strong risk of this, this uh, Californian exceptionalism seeping in. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the more I sort of study the history, the recent history of the United States, the more I, I do see the influence of, of California working itself into the nation as a whole. Another, another, I think, theme in this uh, Rick Perlstein book that I mentioned earlier, it's, uh, the book is called Reaganland, is American conservatism in its contemporary form as a Western and maybe even specifically Californian phenomenon. This is the kind of transition of conservatism from the South to the West. Uh, although I think it would be um, wrong to say that there aren't sort of Southern characteristics, shall we say, kind of uh, is a kind of holdover. Nixon, of course, um, a Californian himself, and Reagan growing up in Illinois, but really kind of being formed and rising to prominence as a kind of Hollywood star. I think there there is this Californian, whether it's a kind of libertarian outlook or a kind of rugged individualism, that is a very strong kind of threnody in conservative politics today. And and, and um, that may sound strange, given that California is, as you say, a, a very kind of uh, redoubtable blue state, and is also known as a trendsetter for sort of uh, liberal policy for uh, gasoline emission standards, or um, an aggressive approach to climate change. So I guess noting these sort of the Californian aspects of US conservatism shows that California's influence on national politics is, uh, can be found sort of on both sides, if you will. I find it, I find it interesting that the Republicans of all people are pointing to California as a sort of image of the future or an image of a possible American future. In that, I've always heard of California. You, you mentioned Reagan. You mentioned this sort of Californian Republicanism and California's role as a cradle of important Republicans that used to vote for Republican presidents. And I've always heard of it cited as as a parable of what happens to the political right if it doesn't move with social and demographic trends. I mean, I've heard it referred to, for example, with with, with reference to European politics, you know, that, that in, in changing societies, conservative parties or center-right parties that don't move with the times or don't adapt will end up like California, California's Republicans, certainly when it comes to presidential elections. It seems to me odd that, that that's, that's now being, that California is now being reinvented as a, as a case for a right-wing, culturally conservative brand of republicanism. The irony seems to me is that if California is the future demographically and culturally, then then the sort of Trumpite politics that was on display at the RNC doesn't have that much longer on the clock. 
wherever you are in the world. If you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. So that brings us on and southwards to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. So our You Ask Us question today is, why is Jair Bolsonaro still relatively popular in Brazil? And putting this to Nick because he's also an expert on Brazilian politics and has written for us on Bolsonaro's presidency and the truly bizarre events of the last months in Brazil. And and to sort of give it a bit of context, this is, I mean, as Emily mentioned, Brazil has now the third behind the US and India largest number of COVID cases. It still has the second highest number of COVID deaths at about 128,000 at the time of recording. Bolsonaro is a president who has done very little to counter this and in fact in many ways has encouraged the spread of COVID by by dismissing it as a, as a, as a little cold, by discouraging mask wearing. He's on his third health minister. The economy's in recession. There's unrest on the streets. And yet his approval ratings are currently at a, a relatively healthy 37%. And and here, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, it is entirely possible that he will be re-elected at the next election in 2022. So Nick, can you solve that riddle for us? Why is it with his record of performance that Bolsonaro is still still has a sizable constituency of support in the country at large? Well, this is, this is the kind of million dollar question of, of Brazilian politics. Why is Jair Bolsonaro not only clinging on, but compared to recent months, actually, he's doing quite well in the polls. There's a kind of easy answer, and then there are, there are kind of more nebulous realms that we can probe. The easy answer is the checks of about $100 a month that uh, poor Brazilians have been receiving from the state as part of a coronavirus relief program. And, and so I guess the irony here is that, of course, governments around the world are, are doing something like this. But this is, uh, at least in Brazilian terms, a move copied from the book of the left-wing Lula administration, which had such great successes with social programs based on um, direct payments to uh, to poor Brazilians. Is he actually getting the credit for these programs, or is it just that people are feeling a bit less bad about things generally, and he kind of gets the reflected benefit of that? Well, so, I mean, the, the specific stimulus funds um, for the coronavirus, they are his program. I think there is the sense, especially in the very poor Northeast region, that, um, you know, this money is coming from Bolsonaro. So uh, the the rise in his um, sort of approval and the steep drop in his disapproval in the Northeast, which generally votes for the left-wing Workers' Party, has been quite extreme and uh, quite correlated with the distribution of these funds. So that's sort of the easy answer. I think to more fully explain his continuing popularity, we have to kind of um, probe the deeper waters of Brazilian culture. Now, I think, um, you know, the the sort of international image of Brazil, and to some extent, this is a kind of holdover from the Lula days of the 2000s and uh, the days of his successor, Jim Rousseff, in the uh, 2010s. Brazil as the country of carnival, of kind of this kind of relaxed social attitude in um, quite unequal country with uh, many favelas, but they, they're sort of trying to improve this. And, um, you know, they're hosting the Olympics and they're trying to kind of um, take this more multilateral position in international affairs. In some ways, I think this, you know, may have been almost, again, sort of more the exception than the rule. There's, there's, a, there's a sort of kind of deeper Brazil, the Brazil kind of of the interior rather than of the 
coasts, which um, is increasingly evangelical. Now, uh, Brazil, a traditionally Catholic country, but one where evangelical Protestantism has made enormous strides in recent decades. And evangelicals now make up something like 40% of the population, which is which would have been unimaginable just decades ago. So with that comes a kind of renewed social conservatism. And um, there's also a kind of, I guess you could call it libertarianism, not entirely unlike this sort of uh, heartland phenomenon or stereotype in America that we've been talking about. And uh, with that comes, we've seen recently in Brazil, there was a and out there was a, a mobilization of uh, anti-abortion forces. There's a very very sort of sad case: a, a very young girl who uh, having an a, an, a, an abortion um, after um, sexual assault. But um, these sort of hardcore anti-abortion forces uh, picketed the the hospital and were really quite aggressive. So there's a sort of outcry in in the cities, um, in sort of uh, more socially liberal areas, but. I think the the fact of this sort of shocking mobilization does reflect this this real strand of uh, sort of traditional social attitudes, which um, is aligned with Bolsonaro's position on these things. Does he owe his approval to the fact that he's handled the, the pandemic in such a crazy and chaotic way, and that people will just respond well to that, or is it is it more the case that there are sort of other forces that allow him to be forgiven the, the kind of the demands of the last few months? I think it's a little of both. There's, I think, among his supporters, on the one hand, there's a sense, uh, and again, you know, not a majority of the country, but maybe as much as a third of the country, there's a sense of uh, approval in his cavalier attitude towards the pandemic. You know, it's a, it's a little flu, you know, um, as the numbers go up, he says, uh, okay, so, you know, so what, or what am I supposed to do? There was one time in which he said, uh, you know, I may be, his middle name is Messiah, <laughs> which is a, a nice touch. He said, so he said, uh, you know, I may be called Messiah, but I don't, I don't work miracles. Yes. Miracles weren't being asked of him, of course. I mean, it's good of him to clarify. Yes. Yeah. So I think um, at, at one level, there is this kind of respect from people who themselves have maybe a kind of certain cavalier attitude and think that he's, um, he's doing a good job, you know, standing up to those people who want to sort of tell people what to do or something. And on the other hand, there is this sense, right, that he's simply their man, that he, in contrast to the political establishment or to the former administrations of Lula and Gilma, he uh, really sort of thinks the way that they do, that that's sort of worth it, I suppose. The The only other thing to note is that, um, kind of mentioned this in this most recent New Statesman piece on Brazil, is that while it would be quite absurd to suggest that, um, you know, Brazil's response to the coronavirus could have been managed worse. I think um, pretty much everything that could have gone wrong has gone wrong as a consequence of this very chaotic and counterproductive effort by the federal government led by Bolsonaro. It's also the case that I think regardless of who was in charge of the government, Brazil would have been hit quite hard. You know, with the sort of health system it's, it's, it's quite fragile, especially in poor areas. Mo- much of Brazil's uh, poor population lives in areas without proper sanitation, whereas the middle and upper classes often live in um, very dense uh, high-rises. Even in smaller cities in Brazil, um, there are often quite dense sort of high-rises, which population lives in. It's, it's an incredibly urbanized country. All of that, I think, um, makes it a place where this virus can really do quite a bit of damage. Well, Brazilian politics continue to be 
one to watch. And Nick, before we let you go, we are going to close as we always do by asking you what else you will be watching for in the the week or weeks ahead. I'll be sort of looking forward to kind of commemorating, I suppose, is uh, the anniversary, at least according to Rick Perlstein, whose book I've mentioned several times, he uh, describes uh, in the book the kind of collapse of the Carter re-election campaign in 1980. This, this happened, according to Perlstein, more or less sort of uh, on September 15th and 16th, when um, Carter kind of went negative on Reagan. Carter was supposed to be this sort of decorous Southerner who um, couldn't say a bad thing about anybody. And uh, he seemed to accuse Reagan of being a racist and of uh, being associated with the Ku Klux Klan in remarks that he had to walk back. But even though he'd walked them back, uh, there was this sense in in sort of uh, New York Times that he'd sort of gone too far. That's sort of quite quaint, I think. Um, American politics of 40 years ago still had a lot of rules of engagement that have simply gone by the wayside now. I'll be, I'll be sort of thinking of this as an indicator that this sort of middle of the month of, of September is a time at which uh, presidential campaigns can, can go awry. Now, of course, I think uh, it's not the incumbent here who might appear to go too negative. It's rather the challenger, uh, Biden. I think, I think it would be hard for Trump to, uh, to say anything that would be perceived as sort of going too negative. But I'll, I'll have my eyes on um, messaging coming out of the Biden campaign. Hmm. Yes, interesting, especially because even today there are uh, debates over whether or not you can call obviously racist statements racist. Anyway, <laughs> Jeremy, what will you be watching for in the week ahead? I'll be watching on uh, next Wednesday as we record this, the 16th of September. Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, is giving her annual State of the Union speech at the European Parliament. And particularly worth watching will be what she says about greenhouse gas emissions. Currently, the EU is committed to reducing them by 40% relative to 1990. But there are are moves to push for faster progress. And the Socialists and the Greens in the Parliament want to go for 65%. Currently, the Conservatives have said they won't go any higher than 50. Apparently, von der Leyen might be about to announce a a goal of 55%, which would be certainly a lot more ambitious, not as far as some people would like to go. But I think it's, it's a really important debate. And it's going to play out very visibly, I think, in the in, in her speech and in responses to it. So I'll, I'll be watching that. And I will be watching, that's right, the beginning of the most exciting two weeks in diplomatic news. UNGA kicks off next week, not the high level week, that's the week after. But the United Nations General Assembly starts next week. Sadly, I will not be here to discuss it with you next week, because happily, I will be on holiday slash vacation. But our colleague, India, the online international editor, will be here to discuss it with Jeremy. Indeed. And we will be, while Emily is on holiday slash vacation, we will be joined by Tom rivet Karnak, who is one of the architects of the Paris Agreement, to talk about the UN and climate change. So with that, I'd like to say a big thanks to Nick and to remind you that you can find the pieces that we've discussed of his on the webpage for this podcast, which along with all of our previous episodes is available at our podcast's homepage, newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. And also that you can, talking of the US, find all of our coverage of the ongoing US election campaign, including whether or not Biden has that fateful mid-September slip up on our US election hub, newstatesman.com slash US hyphen election hyphen 2020. That still leaves us with the mighty task. No, just kidding. Um, Nick Burns, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. 
And listeners, a reminder that if you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your, here it comes, friends, family, sworn enemies, distant cousins, casual acquaintances about it. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.